0: Hey everybody! Welcome to another Wiser Wednesday. Really looking forward to the chat today. Um, so we've got James with us, James Piper, who is the author of the Rubbish Book and also uh, ex CEO of Vehicle Surety. Um, so we're going to be mainly talking about rubbish. So stay tuned. Uh, I'm James Potton, and I believe in a world of entrepreneurial success without burnout. And as I often say, I've got this sort of charred T-shirt to to prove it's almost possible. Um, so look, really. Excited to have James here, uh, or, or Pipes, as he's known, because we were two Jameses. I was Pots, he was Pipes, so we'll probably refer to each other as that today. Um, and we worked together, you know, for a number of years, I think over, over six years at EcoSurety, Um And yeah, I saw you from the beginning and as you've developed and, and, and flourished and so on, James. So um, a, little, a little one fact about you. You've got a ridiculous amount of Lego. Can you explain, um, like, how, quite how much? Yeah. Uh- yeah it's a lot that's uh probably not a good place to start is it with
1: and he's got a lot of plastic I'd <laughs> start but um this is plastic that will never end up in a recycling bin it's, it's on a shelf so uh yeah I've got an an awful lot of it yeah <laughs> okay well, my wife knows I keep a lot of it hidden I think
0: <laughs> yeah well I it's I understand and it's in fantastic investment as well so anyway um Look, current backdrop, we've got AI, the hype is exploding at the moment, but uh, as is the planet. So unfortunately, we're now expecting um to breach the 1.5 degrees climate threshold by 2027. So it's a really important debate today. Um and maybe the former can sort of help the latter. Who knows? Um if you're listening live and if you have any questions, please put them in the chat. Um so look, James, to begin with, like tell us a bit about your journey um and how are you sort of well became a rubbish geek far away. Cool. Good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for having me,
1: Uh, Pot. uh Yeah, so I joined uh, EcoSurety in 2009. Um, I was looking for a company that was going to do, do good for the planet, and I'd studied biology at Exeter and decided I wanted to make a difference. And I came across this company that looked like it really wanted to work with some interesting brands, interesting retailers, and make a difference. So I joined effectively as a graduate. I've held lots of roles over time. At one point, I was IT manager, famously when the website went down for two weeks. Um, I've held lots of roles in the company. So <laughs> no comment.
0: Like it was, it, it was handed to you as the website as the as it went down, I believe. So it I don't of- take too much responsibility for it,
1: but we did get it back up and running. <laughs> and uh, latterly, I was lucky enough to become CEO. So I became CEO after uh, POTS uh, in twenty sixteen. And then ran the company for about five years before I decided I was going to go traveling with my wife and we'd go and see the world. So if you've seen that picture of me on LinkedIn that you keep promoting, I had a massive beard because I was just about to head to
0: Antarctica and I'd built up some uh, beard to keep me warm. Very jealous. And- you know, you know, I'm unable to do anything in that region. So <laughs> my, not, not the North Pole or South Pole. <laughs> I mean, like around here, that's that's my limit. So
1: right and then so we um so we went traveling and over that time the rubbish book was launched which was a passion project for me to try and explain to consumers how to recycle and how complex the world of recycling is in a really simple way or as simple as i could put it
0: yeah no it's great let's explore a bit more like you know what you know you you obviously set out writing the book i think it, it was a few years in the making and and as it's for anyone who's tried to write a book uh uh, you know how hard it is, and like how determined you've got to be to do it. So, like, you know, why did you start, and like, why did you like get through the to the end to actually get it out there?
1: Yeah, I guess before, uh, yeah, before I talk about eco it's definitely worth talking about the book, and it's something I'm very excited by. something I'm very passionate about. I originally wrote it as a kids' book. I had this kind of idea that uh, children wanted to know more about recycling than their parents, and they could teach them. And so I envisaged it to be a children's book. And I wrote it because I'd seen an article. It was actually on the BBC. Uh, I remember the date it was the 17th of October 2018. There was an article on the BBC that said plastic pollution found on shipwreck. And you can still find this article if you just searching Google, plastic pollution found on shipwreck. And if you look at the image at the top of that, there is plastic pollution that's on this um shipwreck. I believe it's the HMS Invincible that had been raised and they found this plastic, Uh, but there were only about eight plastic bottles and there were 38 aluminium cans. (laughs) And I was really interested that the BBC had chosen the headline plastic pollution found on shipwreck, as opposed to, you know, packaging found on shipwreck or mostly Mm. aluminium, some plastic. In terms of the actual packaging that was on that shipwreck, it was mostly aluminium. And I just felt that bias and that uh, hatred towards plastic makes Do really weird things. There's actually just been the most amazing study that shows that people believe things are more environmental if they have paper stuck to them. So even if you use the same amount of plastic, As long as you stick a bit of paper on it as well, you believe or people believe it's more environmental, which is just classic. When you demonize something, when you tell people that plastic is bad, they automatically believe aluminium must be good or paper must be good or the alternatives must be good. And Mm. I felt there was an opportunity to kind of rethink that. Um, I like to give the example of the loo roll company that uh, famously wrapped their toilet rolls individually and people believe they're doing a good thing and they are a good company ethically they do the right thing but you know they are individually wrapping toilet rolls and last time I checked those toilet rolls were coming from China. So you compare that to a locally sourced product that's made from recycled paper, not virgin paper, that isn't individually wrapped in paper, and it would have a much better environmental impact. So we all get a little bit confused. So I thought, I'll just write all of this up in a book and I'll I'll make it appeal to kids. Um, And that was back in 2018, 2019, when that article came out. And then I shelved it. I was going to self-publish it. I got scared. So I shelved it, I saved it in my hard drive, ignored it. And lockdown happened. And it's funny you mentioned Lego. We actually hadn't talked about that before. But there was a Lego book that came out at the start of lockdown or that was that was being uh, crowdfunded. And I came across this publisher that specializes in crowdfunding publishing. So the idea is you put your pitch up, um, people pre-buy the book and then you write it. And then they get sent the book, you know, two or three years later. And I thought, wow, crowdfunding would be a really interesting way of doing this because it would show that people were interested in recycling. They wanted the product. You get your name printed in the book if you crowdfund it. So it was nice for people who I know well who wanted to support the book. And so we put it out there. uh, About 400 people pre-bought the book and it got published and it got uh, and we it became a lockdown project for my wife and i she drew the illustrations and because we made it super digestible we filled it with illustrations i wrote it um it went through all the usual publishing things and then i went traveling around the world and was lucky enough that halfway through those travels uh, while i was in antarctica actually um it it got published and i came home just after antarctica found it in waterstones had the very exciting picture of me and waterstones holding my book so <laughs> awesome.
0: yeah, it was an exciting few years definitely yeah well look uh yeah i was one of those 400 so really pleased to have received it a signed you know copy and and i i'd say t- i was gonna you know we, we had a, a quick chat beforehand. I, I would say that I've read it and really enjoyed it, but it's not a kind of pick it up and read from start to finish. You pick it up and you go to the area where you're, you know, the thing that you're looking to recycle or trying to understand. So it's 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 more, you know, I guess, have you have you had anyone read it from beginning to end? Other no, than you... I've
1: read it many times. I'm <laughs> glad you clarified it was the reading at beginning to end and not the enjoying it that
0: you... No, uh... I did enjoy. No, it's good. That's like good. You, there's stuff in there that you... Yeah. And And also this is a, you know, this is a moving, moving play field. I always remember sort of like, is it, you know, black plastic couldn't be recycled, but that's that shifted, hasn't it? It's
1: Yeah. Yeah. So it, I have had people read it beginning to end, but the idea was to have 150 topics that you could uh, pick and choose and maybe have it next to your recycling bin. So if you were like, oh, I can't remember if yogurt pots can be recycled, you can quickly flick to that page and have a quick check as to what kind of yogurt pots can be recycled. Um, Black, black plastic is a really interesting one. Um, which I talk about a lot in the book around why that's difficult to recycle and
0: and how we make that easier. Mm, brilliant. Okay. Well, look, we'll come back to the book um, a bit later. So let's re- rewind the clock right back. Um, yeah, where are we? So 2009, um, this is when, you know, we're going through the interview process, the rigorous interview process. You were probably asked to sell a pen or something as you were going into a more sort of commercial role at the time. I think it was more of a marketing um role I think you're employee number 19 and there were like eight of us in the business at the time so it was um really early stage in in the journey for the business even though we'd been you know going for nearly sort of five or so years um so yeah look what 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 why did you join and you know talk a bit about what is eco surety so
1: yeah, okay. Um, let's start with what eco actually is, because we keep talking about it as if we, because we know it very well. But, uh, no, no, no. <laughs> the business works with uh, packaging, waste electricals and batteries uh, producers, so people who make those products, and helps them comply with environmental law. And uh, the easiest way to describe that is if you buy a, a bottle of water, let's say from a supermarket, then that supermarket has to go and arrange the recycling of a bottle. And the person who manufactured the bottle has to recycle a bit. And the person who filled it with water has to recycle a bit. So everyone in the supply chain has to recycle a bit of that bottle. So we have kind of two jobs um, to do the data work to work out how many bottles were sold and what their weight was, what type of plastic, all those kind of things. And then we have the making sure that the recycling actually happens for those products. So making sure that we go to a plastic recycler and say, I need you to recycle this many bottles on this company's behalf. Um, and we work with lots of big brands and retailers. So um, people like Nestle and Sainsbury's and Mars. So very familiar household names uh, that we've built up over the years and work with. In terms of why I joined it, it was a much smaller company back then. We're at about uh, 70 employees now. Back then, as as James says, but It's 7 people, zero. They, seven zero yeah back then we were at about eight um so much smaller um and it was it was really different and I guess why did I want to join EcoSurety I'd had some pretty bad experiences over the years with some bad managers pre EcoSurety I should be very clear um and I was very keen to join a company that looked like it was doing the right thing from a cultural perspective which I definitely got the feel of during the interview and then I was keen to do something good and and as I say seemed really exciting it was early stage uh the business was still deciding its product mix so it was still um deciding exactly what its products were going to be it was deciding what kind of clients it was going to be and i think it's fair to say back then when i joined in 2009 the kind of clients we had to have today we could never have managed back then um it just would have been so much for strain on the cash flow of the business and the capabilities and so we spent a lot of time building capability and and the ability for the business to work with essentially anyone, um, which which has taken a lot of growth and strain and and interesting situations that we've we've gone through over the years. So I was very keen to join a small company. I think my my friends uh, were tending towards big brands that we knew. And I was quite keen to join something that I didn't really understand to uh, be a kind of bigger fish in a small pond as it were rather than the other way around so i was very keen to join something that was kind of in the startup phase looked like it had room for growth and i could become part of and, and that's exactly what happened over those
0: years yeah amazing yeah it, it was interesting because even it was, wasn't was even called eco at the time was it it was called budget pack so we we'd set out with a um you know uh the thing with compliance sometimes is people don't always want to this is can see it as a tax and just want the sort of cheapest way of dealing with it. And um y- you know, that was a mindset that we had to we shifted in mindset on, and to go on that journey and to become like eco And um um yeah, it, 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 it was it was really interesting. That was a real that was a real shift. Um just i remember that us having a concept that look we wanted to create a company that was um not necessarily in london but had a sort of vibe of like come here and you know become your the best version of yourself and you know that that was really important um that sort of culture what was your onboarding process like i uh, i still
1: remember my first day like it was yesterday i actually joined with two others on the same day so there was a nice element of competition as to you know certainly in our first few months uh, we were getting Tested and all sorts of things, and it was like trying to get the best scores. So it was great fun, uh, a really healthy uh, competitive environment. I think what was most interesting about the onboarding compared to where it is now was I probably spent half an hour in the first couple of days with every member of the team, uh, getting to know them and understanding who they were and what they did for the company. And everyone had a very specific role. It wasn't so much teams. It was like there's a finance person, there's a uh, IT person. You know, it wasn't really teams. Mm. And we all went to lunch together that first day we were based up in aztec west we all went for lunch and uh it was very different and every time someone joined we went out for toby's carvery and you know it just was ridiculous how much food we were eating because the company was growing so rapidly um and it was just and i compare that to today where everything is way more hybrid um and we're growing so fast um yeah, you know the, on average, probably two or three people a month, uh, maybe more than that even. And it's quite hard to get to know everyone. So we've just had our 20th anniversary and I've just we've just spent a couple of days at the Eden Project, which was amazing. And I'm like, there's so many people here I don't know. There's teams I don't know, which is uh, amazing, really, compared to where it's come from and, and what that onboarding looked like. Um, and what's kind of interesting about that, and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about it, is how you keep the culture of a business where it's quite easy when there's like eight people and you're sort of recruiting people that you know, are going to fit within that quite small environment. Um, And you're trying to get diversity and try and bring in something a bit different each time you recruit to um, a similar sort of setup, but you know, you're moving into a more hybrid environment and there may be a chance that people don't meet people for, you know, months compared to me having a lunch with everyone um, over those first couple of days and getting to know them all. So yeah, it's, it's a, I I really enjoyed the onboarding process of the small company and I'm excited as to how we've been able to take the kind of cultural aspects that really work for us and move them into this more hybrid environment with a much larger company.
0: Mm, Yeah. Okay, yeah, no, really, yeah, that's amazing, like, and, you know, hats off to, to you guys to sort of con- continued that. I'd forgotten the Toby Carberry thing, but it worked, it worked really well, because everyone looked forward to someone joining, because you got to go up for Toby Carberry. <laughs> yeah, and then it was always someone's job to print out the ice cream vouchers before you went. Yeah, so we got two for one, it was brilliant, it was just, uh, yeah, it was a real, I mean, it was really, you know, it was really, like, ingrained in, in, in the, the, the heart of the, the business and we went through that process of um defining the the values So the values were earlier earlier on in that journey we did it as a team i don't know if you remember that session we'd probably because we had a jump didn't we we kind of went from like 2.8 to 8.9 mil turnover in one year and then suddenly had to go in we started the grad program because it was the only way we could bring on enough people we started like hiring three four grads at a time and that first kind of Christmas, we did the um the value session. I, I remember it being, I think Steve played um he, he played it was it must be Olympics time because he played the uh, after the Olympics, like the all the sort of you know British medals and so on, really inspiring. And then we all like took took part and like we had value cards and we all like you know chose cards that mattered to us, said why they mattered, did it over like two, three hours out of the office and and obviously had our Christmas party afterwards, but that was a that was a real kind of moment where people could connect with why they joined the business i, I felt so mm. it was and there was like a lot there was a lot of us um there was it, because we'd grown so so quickly you needed to do that exercise for people to feel like they were part of building that that new culture so
1: yeah, absolutely
0: um so yeah um what what did what have you sort of seen um change what's what's changed um yeah, like from when you started to when you really saw the business motoring, you know, that that example of that jump, you know, the three times multiple in one year is like a, a big multiple. And you've obviously like replicated that again, like since um, in different order of magnitudes. But what what was it, do you think, that we started to really like nail down like as a business to to be able to, so everyone was kind of, put it in the right direction in that that type of thing
1: yeah I think well you've kind of got a couple of things there obviously when I started it was very much startup mentality we just had to get things done work whatever hours we needed to work um and just really it was kind of success or failure on the product mix that we were introducing we were just getting into kind of batteries recycling which is uh you know when you go in a supermarket and you have to put a battery in a bin I was like designing those bins as my first job and finding them in supermarkets and taking photos of them sent to the team. So it was like real startup mentality. And we had different points where we had to grow up, I think. And, you know, that zero to 10, I wasn't part of too much, but I was certainly part of the, you know, 10 to 25 people and then 25 people to 50. And I would say that's where we had these kind of points where you reflect on the culture and make sure what you've built is correct. And, you know, going from 10 to 25 was uh, really interesting and and that kind of right we need to get ISO 9001 we need to do all of these things to make sure that we're really strong as a business and then 25 to 50 brought its own cultural challenges because you start talking about opening different offices all in the same building but in different spaces so suddenly people have to walk to talk and this is before everyone was hybrid so it's was, it was really interesting and then as we've gone 50 plus and and you know, the turnovers grown and the business has grown very significantly, taken on very significant clients. And we're now, at you know, 100 million plus turnover. It's, it's a completely different business again. And now it's less about kind of sales. I would say the business was very sales focused. And I think now it's about it's gone back to that kind of product mix focus. What product are we offering? How do we make that the best it can be? Because we've got the brands and retailers that we want to work with. Um, and then how do we transition them into new products and new th- services we can offer? So it's sort of like a curve where it started off very much in product mix. And then we won lots of brands and retailers became very sales focused. And I would say we're kind of going back into that product mix now where it's like, right, well, we've we've taken a significant market share. We've got all these really good brands. We're doing what I consider to be a fantastic job for them and, and doing all these amazing things. How do we expand our remit? How do we do more with them? And, and that's really where we are at the moment.
0: Yeah, amazing. And I, I remember, sort of, it, what what what's quite interesting is we sort of set out like writing, I think, and it was around twenty twelve again, like writing a sort of twenty twenty vision. But y- you know, you managed to track, not exactly, but not not far off, like that that tracks, didn't it, through the through those the teen years?
1: Yeah, when I became CEO, I set myself a, a six year plan. Um, which I laid out and said, this is what we're going to do. And I read it the other day, actually, funnily enough, because I've been moving house. So I went to um, uh, clear out some of my old folders and I was like, oh, okay, here's my six-year plan I wrote. <laughs> you look back at it with hindsight, you're like, wow, we achieved so much of this. You know, it really was amazing about this kind of, um, But I don't need to go into detail around it, but, you know, in terms of the financial plans, in terms of the the plans of the kind of clients we would win, and work with we we really tracked it um very well and it was a really interesting lesson to me because at the time you felt like uh, i felt focused but i didn't feel as focused as perhaps you look back in hindsight and go wow okay we actually did everything we intended to do and we did it sort of in the right timelines um yeah. so it was great just to sit down as i became ceo sit down and go what are my next six years going to look like what would i what would i consider to be success
0: yeah amazing Yeah. Uh, and what what was interesting with that is there was a point in so before you know the 2009 2010 sort of period we'd write down plans and it was just it was really hard to actually like make it happen and we'd started to introduce like KPIs but hadn't really got into like the quarterly rhythms and so on and then yeah that that and and we can come on to like OKRs but like that that then next part of the journey just we, we actually got the traction so you know I work with a lot of businesses now and I'm always like you've got to look forward what are you where are you trying to get to otherwise you can't you, you, you don't know whether you're going to you know you're not going to get there you'll get somewhere but um so you've got to like do that planning but you've also got to like work out how to actually turn it into an actionable um that's why I work on triple horizons so I'm always like you know you need like three to five years one year and then what's the next 90 days um and we we got really we got really good at getting the, those rhythms right. Um, do, yeah, do you sort of see that? I think because it wasn't just any one thing, was it? It was it was getting that right. It's getting the 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 culture right. There's there's multiple things that had to come together for the business to to go on a hundred million turnover trajectory, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think um, it's difficult to describe and put into words how that happened. But we underpinned it with a really good purpose, really good values that allowed us to, to map out then our OKRs below that, um, so our objectives and key results. And really it was about saying, okay, where do we want to be in six years? Okay, we've got that laid out. And then how's that going to work into three years? And then what does that look like in a year? And then, you know, what does that look like in a quarter from a key result perspective? And start looking at outputs versus inputs. You know, I don't really care or I didn't care. Um, how many hours people worked for us or when they were working or what they were doing. What I cared about is were we achieving these outputs uh, that were really clear and really locked into the business.
0: Yeah. And maybe that's a good, good time to move into sort of OKRs So for people who uh, haven't come across them, it's objectives and key results. Um, we kind of had POKRs, didn't we? So we had purposeful objectives and key results. So we kind of created this thing where it's like, it has to have purpose like why are you trying to achieve this objective and does it get you out of bed in the morning um and then um and then obviously the, the the key results are effectively like kpis things that you have to do that are broken down to achieving that um but that 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 it's almost you know like my my time had sort of you know c- come come with the business when when it was um you know when i when i moved on it was I, I, that that had been the point when we'd managed to get iso like 9014 18000 like okrs were working like this sort of suddenly we had like the the map of how to systematize and get the business like everyone pointing in the same direction um so yeah like from from your perspective i know because i had i had an obsession with like cascading okrs so yeah talk us through a bit about like how how because you've continued with AKRs, I think, haven't you? If you if you kept, yeah,
1: I think, yeah, good, good to check that we've continued it.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, you,
1: um, yeah, well, yeah, it's the design of the business. You know, we, um, this output versus input point. It's very, you know, what I think businesses have a tendency to get into this kind of micromanagement space where it's like we need to know exactly what everyone's doing, whereas take for example I want to win I don't know five contracts this year let's say then all I need to do is measure that I mean the sales guys can then have this is how many meetings this is how many proposals this is um what that conversion rate is going to look like and and, uh, you know that's your key result piece which we don't need to spend time on we can just spend time on the objectives and if the objective isn't hit we can then go back and look at what what wasn't working and I'm a big fan of that kind of output delivery of, as a manager, we shouldn't really get into this kind of, have you been to that meeting? Cause uh, I think if I just go into kind of my style as a manager, it's much more just, I think businesses can have a tendency to become like school where it's, you know, you need to be here on time. You need to wear this, you need to do this. And obviously the world has evolved. And this was quite radical thinking, you know, when I became CEO almost 10 years ago, where I said, look, I'm just going to throw out the rule book and you know, you work as you need to work. You turn up when you want to turn up. You take a day off. If you need to take a day off, It's, I don't really care um, what you're doing on a day-to-day basis. You can work at three in the morning if you want to, as long as it doesn't affect your job. And so then you have customer service people going, okay, well, I can't work at three in the morning cause my customers are live nine to five and they're making that decision for themselves, you know, and they didn't need to get holiday approved by their manager. Cause we trusted people to look at everyone else's calendars and work out whether they could have holiday or not. Um, so for me, it was about treating everyone like adults. Um, we only kept two things, uh, which famously get removed at this point. Uh, we kept expenses, guide and uh, holiday days because every study shows you if you give people unlimited holiday they take less (laughs) so we said no we want you to take the right amount so we kept the number of holiday days and for expenses we tried to get rid of expenses as in say look you can expense whatever you want and that just meant people were quite scared to expense reasonable hotels and they would stay in quite dodgy places so we said look this is how much we expect you to spend so those were the only two kind of rules as it were things that we had written in a handbook Um, everything else was you know we're going to treat you like an adult and if you decide to kind of um, abuse that trust I guess then we need to have conversations and we'll have those conversations we're not afraid to have difficult conversations but um, equally if you um, enjoy that culture and enjoy that trust then uh, it's going to be the best place to work because you're not Kind of draconian and i guess that was the whole business that was how we saw the whole business that then fed into these kind of okrs and look we trust you to get on with your job and we don't need to know what you're doing what we want is these key objectives that the business has these very high level objectives um and we want to hit them and we want to be excited about hitting them and if we don't hit them we want to look at that but um but we did it within this kind of really interesting culture and environment and you know we moved hybrid we moved to this office in Finzel's Reach uh january 2020 so just before the start of covid you know mm. and we were reducing down to 20 desks from 50 desks you know because we knew that people were working from home when they wanted to and doing what they needed to do around their lives and work wasn't their prior, you know it was a priority but it wasn't like the only thing going on in people's lives and we recognised that so we moved to this 20 person office we've grown to a 70%. We've had to put a few more deaths in, but, um, <laughs> but not many. And most people will just hybrid work, but we were doing that before COVID. That was our aim anyway, because the business had already gone that way. And I guess what's interesting is the world is sort of catching up to that now. And, and we've seen that really deliver amazing results, absolutely amazing results by just giving people that autonomy and, and giving them the feeling that they can do what they need to do within their work.
0: Mm, yeah it's super interesting it's like you know you know the concept of, like business like grows in like s curves so you get this like growth spurt you like and the, and you often need different teams to grow through those different s curves um the foundations there was a lot of like defining what what was needed to be able to achieve like the outcome so once you've gone through that process you can then become much more out outcome focused i guess because you you've defined what you know process wise there's there's a lot of things like where 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 the dovetail is between different roles and and so on it's um yeah it's, it's really interesting too that you can become more outcome focused once you've defined what what good looks like
1: yeah that's right
0: um okay brilliant and like and it, it, it back to just like a, a bit one one last thing we cascading because we I remember we had sort of doing good as this kind of concept. And as a, in terms of culture, we talked about being the type of person who picks a piece of litter up um, and puts it in the bin, not like, you know, just walking past it. So that, that, that is, that's quite um, every time I see a piece of litter, I still think about it.
1: (laughs) It's nice nice to just have something in your, something simple that kind of uh, encompasses Your culture and for us that was it we're going to do the right thing we're going to um we're going to always be the you know the person who helps out basically um and one of the things we did was we defined a purpose i can't remember what year this was it would have been around the rebrand i said i want a better purpose because we had one that was very compliance focused um and you look at something like disney where uh, I think their purpose is something like to make people happy, and it's like, well, then you can, then you can do anything. <laughs> I could be wrong, but I thought that was theirs, and that would mean you could have a theme park and films, and you know, you the the brand became so much more about the feeling rather than uh, rather than the product. Mm-hmm. And I think if you look at Apple, they're a great example of this. And I know Simon Sinek talks about this a lot with the golden circle. Start mm-hmm. with the why. You know, I always say Apple could launch a lawnmower tomorrow. And there is a percentage of the population that would queue up for the eye lawn, (laughs) you know, even though they have no experience in gardening and it is completely weird. And if you said Dell are launching a lawnmower, you'd be there going, that's weird, you know, and uh, they've made themselves, this kind of, uh, they've given themselves the permission and ability to launch anything because their customer base is more in tune with them as an organization and their feeling that they generate rather than the product itself. And I was wondering how we could do that, how we could make it so that our customers really enjoyed being part of us because they knew it wasn't about the product. It was about the the feeling that we gave. And so we decided to change our purpose away from something very specific. And we we landed on change for good. Uh, this idea that we would make change in what we did and it would be permanent you know, the wordplay on for good. So it'd be permanent and uh, better. And suddenly that created all sorts of weird things. So like I, we created it and we said, this is what we want to be. We want to make change for good. And we had people coming in. (laughs) (laughs) We had people coming in going, I've just discovered the thermostat comes on at four in the morning. Right. We were in a managed office. Um, It just, it comes on at four in the morning. So I've written to the management company. It's now going to come on at seven, you know, and it's like, wow, three hours a day of, heating just gone <laughs> um you know just because of that purpose and we moved from having dominoes for our team meetings to having you know really amazing uh food that was that had been left over and was then turned into team building food and all these little things that existed in the business that we just made tiny tweaks and it was like okay we're doing something better and as long as we kept doing that then we'd get better and better and better and then we did the same with our product range and we said how do we make our product more transparent and more focused and at the time there was a lot of talk around exporting and there still is exporting recycling so how do we buy a lot more of our or arrange a lot more of our recycling within the uk um and all these kind of big macro um uh product questions we started asking ourselves and then we we made our products better and more transparent and so companies joined us you know we had suddenly had all these massive brands and retailers uh saying we want to be part of this because you're doing the right thing you're demonstrating that you're you're making real change um and it's in your dna it's in your culture and that's meant that as we've got up to 70 people and as we've grown our turnover significantly we keep coming back to are we making changes for the better you know are we um you know so we've got a b corp now we're one of uh, the only b where well, we were the first b corp in our industry and uh, we're now the second uh there's another one that's come in um but we did a a lot of work around becoming a b corp um, a lot of work around uh, our ISO accreditations and the, and the organization itself and the structure and all those kind of things that has allowed us to continue what is quite a unique culture, even as it grows. And even as I don't recognize people, it's amazing to see how they fit in within that culture, because we have this kind of underpinning Look, we're here to do things better than the day before. And if we just keep doing that, then we get better and better. We're never going to be perfect, but we'll always get better.
0: Mm, yeah it's awesome it's just that sense of like progress and the sense of yeah like not standing still that's it um there's there's a there's a really interesting photo from like 2016 with a team of around circa 45 people in it and a photo from the team in 2022 circa 45 people in it um but only eight of the same people you know i often sort of point to that as a is a is an example of the importance of you know systems and the importance of of process, um, but also heart. So yeah, what I mean, you you obviously you were you were there for that whole whole journey. So you you is it something where you've seen people even if the people change because you've got things defined, you're able to bring someone in you that may even be like more appropriate for like the next escalator of the business. Yeah. And
1: I've had that exact moment that you experienced, you know, I went traveling for a year and a half and I left knowing everyone (laughs) and towards the end of my travels, I saw a team photo and I was like, there's 30, 32 people there. I don't know. Um, and so I've had to get to know everyone as I've come back and, and that's been amazing and it's a, it's a really interesting uh, feeling to have been part of the business for 15 years to know everyone, to spend time with everyone to suddenly having to introduce yourself and people having to work out who you are um, I should say by the way I'm not CEO of Surety anymore I know you've said that before but in terms of my role I'm a non-exec director and shareholder so I am still involved in the business which is why I say hello to people um, I don't just like keep, up, <laughs> keep them. Out when, I mean I might turn up when they don't want me to turn up okay, I'm like, going traveling <laughs> <laughs> I am still involved in the business um so that's why I know the, uh, I know I've met people so I've, I've experienced that I think culturally what's been really interesting is I think we've got really good at recruitment um we try really hard you know we d- avoid all the classic mistakes like recruiting in your own image we try and bring in a very diverse team of thinkers innovators pioneers whatever we're looking for at the time and we've got very good at, at being bolder at kind of recruiting the right people and saying no to the wrong people. And I think in the past, when you're in that rapid growth phase, you're like, I just need people in the business, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and you, I guess you can you can end up with um, not the culture derailing, but the culture becoming harder because you've got uh, different types of people coming into the business. And I think once you've once you're very clear on what you want your business to feel like and look like, you can introduce that to people during the interview process and really see whether they're engaged with that and excited by that. And then if people come into the business who are excited about the culture, very quickly, they will support that culture and develop it and make it even better. Um, If you get people coming in who aren't excited by the culture because you haven't been able to define what it actually is, then uh, you can end up going a bit backwards and having to to rethink it. So Mm -hmm. I think the key for me was really working out exactly how we felt and who we were and being able to describe that in the really early phase of someone coming into the business so that they were then joining with that knowledge and joining with the excitement of developing that even further and making it better rather than trying to work against it because it didn't match their, uh, their, what they were excited by.
0: Mm. Yeah. 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 Look, I mean, and what's really interesting about defining and, in basically setting out your store was to like, this is, you know, we may not be here yet but this is where we want to be and this is who we want to become like that's it's almost like a you know cognitive dissonance that's needed like to understand we're not there yet but this is where we want to be and we know we you know there's a gap but that journey you know people will people will leave you you know when you do this exercise you say this is where we're going you will lose people like it's just it's just natural that you know that's something that i did notice with whenever we went through one of those transformation like processes um we, we we lost people um you know it did it just wasn't always it wasn't for everyone um and that's you know that that is the reality of um of, of trying to define um where you'd like to be rather than just accepting where you are yeah okay uh do you wanna do you, is there any I did have one question like is it, looking back is there anything you would have changed?
1: uh oh uh that is a very difficult question it's difficult to know what would have uh because you kind of look at it and you say well we've made good progress and it's been really fun and the business is in a really good place at the moment and has been in a really good place for a number of years and I guess um you look back and say well what if I'd made changes what would have been different would it have been better or worse so um I don't look back that much <laughs> I just thought, okay no. we moved on uh, you know we moved really fast and it looked really good I think I don't I can't think of anything obvious that we would have changed. Um,
0: and you never know what, because you exactly not, I, you I can't, can't have a control.
1: control. <laughs> yeah, I can't think of anything off the top of my head, that uh, because as you say, you just don't know what way it would have gone. All I know is I think we took the right risks at the right time, and a lot of those have paid off and worked. I think some things we were quite far ahead of the market I guess that maybe that's why I would have changed like there were products I was launching and things I was doing particularly around transparency and around trying to get the market into a better place and the market was very stubborn and didn't want to move and didn't want transparency and people didn't want to pay extra for knowing where their stuff came from and we're in a much different place now you know in terms of like recycling people really care about uh, brands and retailers do really care about where their stuff's going and, and what's happening to it and I guess I was probably two or three years ahead of the market getting to that point. So I don't look back at that with any regrets because lots of people joined us off just the ideas and the excitement. But I feel we probably could have delivered faster and more had we just gone with the crowd. But that's not very exciting. So I don't think I can say my change would be, be less innovative, which is basically what I'm saying. I think it's just if you're, if you are a pioneer and you're doing things ahead of the market, I guess it's be prepared to fail because the market might not come with you. Um, mm. but what it does do is set you up as like, okay, these are the kind of people I want to join. This is the kind of business I want to be part of. Cause I'd rather be with the people who are thinking outside the box and failing or not, you know, or, uh, not failing, but not having the market come with them. I'd rather be with those people than the people who are following, um, so I wouldn't even say that was a bad thing. It was just, it's an interesting observation that we were moving faster than the market was ready to move.
0: Mm, yeah, really interesting. Yeah, and look, if you look at trends, it, it, yeah, it's just, it's it's happened um, through necessity. The public have woken up the, you know, it's a very different narrative to what it was, you know, in 2012 around like waste and recycling and which, which leads us back to the book really. So, you know, let, let's talk about that. What, what's next for you? You know, what, what you, you've got your rubbish brand, which I think is brilliant. Um, uh, you know, uh, your book's been a su- great success it has been converted into Chinese, I think soon to be released or maybe even out I now. Mean, I'm
1: still waiting for my Chinese copy. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, so yeah, look what, what's next for you and, in and, uh,
1: yeah, I think um, I think my role is to now. I, I mean, I'm enjoying working within EcoSurety uh, part time to help uh, that business get shaped really well, and I'm excited by that. But I'm very excited about making recycling easier for consumers and helping us all understand how to recycle better. And however I do that, you know, I've got loads of ideas within the rubbish brand. Um, you know, we've got the rubbish book and. There'll be other things I launch inevitably over the coming months and years that will that are all geared around helping people recycle better. I'm also doing a lot of non-exec work, so helping um, a labelling company that put, puts labels on all of our products to tell us whether they can be recycled or not. Um, I'm working within a, a fund that's uh, investing in recycling technologies to help us all be able to recycle more. So I'm kind of just trying to stay, or I am staying at the forefront of the recycling industry, just with the aim to getting us recycling more and recycling better.
0: Right. That uh, sounds sounds really exciting. Is you, are you um like le- like how does the book help people recycle? Yeah, so I think the key thing for me is stories.
1: So like I um I never remember whether a drinking glass or a pyrex glass jug can be recycled. But the second I remember that you know, bottles have different melting points to all other glass. You start thinking, okay, well, if I was to put that in a fire, it wouldn't melt at the same rate. So therefore I probably shouldn't put in, you know, drinking glasses, Pyrex jugs, all those kind of things. So I'm a big fan of telling stories and people remembering the story rather than the product. So probably the best example of this, and the one I I roll out all the time, uh, literally is, is about balls of uh, rubbish. So when recycling is sorted so if we're putting all our recycling in a bin let's say outside or or at your house and it's mixed together so you've got metals and glass and cans and uh, paper all going into one bin it's going to go to a a material recovery facility which is going to pick it out um, and look for certain types of material and the way it does that i mean it's long and convoluted but each material has a different way of getting stuff out so uh steel is going to be Uh, they're going to use a magnet to get steel out glass. They're going to crush it and it's going to go through um, a filtration type system, paper. They put it in like a giant washing machine and it separates all the paper out. So each material has its own way of getting taken out. And you don't need to remember any of that. All you need to remember is that anything smaller than a tennis ball probably won't get sorted and will probably either fall off a conveyor belt or it's not designed for that machinery. So the second you have that, you can start thinking okay i've got a coffee pod well a coffee pod it's going to be really difficult for that to get recycled because it's smaller than a tennis ball so i'll join pod back which is a scheme i've helped launch which has a specific uh, bag for coffee pod recycling so that we can collate it all together and send it to a recycler together so coffee pods are a great example or i've finished my dinner and i've got a bit of aluminium foil and i roll it up oh it's smaller than a tennis ball i'll wait till i've got some more and i'll make that bigger or I've only got a little bit of tin foil. I could put it in an aluminium can because now it's bigger. So once people start remembering smaller than a tennis ball, almost impossible to sort, you don't need to tell them about coffee pods and aluminium foil and all the things that are smaller than a tennis ball. You can just go, look, make it bigger than a tennis ball, and it's probably likely to get recycled. And that's how I've approached the book. It's like, how do we create these really simple rules that help people? Um, put things in the right bin in the right way and they don't have to remember what do I do with coffee pods what do I do with this what do I do with that so we've written out all these rules and tried to make it as simple as possible and in the book we still have a like here's 50 common household items can they be recycled or not still have that but I've tried to create these very simple rules around things like black plastic and and size and um material type that help people just remember maybe five things and that'll allow them to be amazing recyclers.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. No, it really sticks. That you know, just just that that concept of a tennis ball. It's it's weird. And people just wouldn't know it. It's just not that's definitely not on any of the stickers you get from your council.
1: Yeah, exactly. We don't talk about it. And yet it's the easiest way to remember it, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. What's um what's one surprising fact about recycling
1: well i think the one that everyone obsesses with every time i do any interview they always focus on this one so i'll I'll give this it's similar to the tennis ball rule but slightly different lids so whenever we talk about lids so bottle lids um beer lids whatever it is the key is to put them back on the bottle so um if you're drinking a plastic bottle put the lid back on and actually a lot of coca-cola now you'll find is tethered
0: just seen yeah that's happened recently.
1: people are like Why is it tethered? And if you look at the top, it says I'm attached so that it's easier to recycle. And that's the reason it's smaller than the tennis ball. But it's the same with beer lids. You know, if you've got a glass beer bottle, put the metal lid back on when you've finished and then put that in the glass bin. Um, And with the glass guys, they all have magnets to pull those um, or eddy currents to pull those lids off uh, when it gets crushed up. So the glass bottle is going to get crushed up, the lid comes off, and then they separate them and they send that off to be recycled. With the plastic guys, there are they're actually different types of plastic. You can't have the same type of plastic because you end up with um like colour leakages and things. So uh, the bottle will be PET, the lid will be a harder plastic, like a PP or whatever it is. And so what they do is they shred them and then they put it in a tank of water and the bottles, I forget which way around it is. I'm assuming it's the bottles float and the lids sink, but it could be the other way. I can't remember. Yeah. It's in the book. This is my plug to buy the book so you can find (laughs) out. Um, They're basically putting it in a giant water tank and the two types of plastic separate. And so once you've shredded it up, it's the easiest way to do it. So that's how they separate the lids from the bottles. It means you can tighten them up and it won't have any problems. Um, And I think whenever I talk about lids, people are like, what really? And I think one of the things this tells us is, is the biggest problem with recycling is every council does things differently. And some councils signed their contract with their um, sorting facility, you know, 10, 20 years ago. So a lot of the advice we get on the websites is actually out of date. You know, some councils will say, take lids off. And they will have that on their council website. Ignore it. <laughs> Only with the lids <laughs> and size stuff. Just put them back on. It, it, there is nobody who can't sort that. You know, it's fine. And that is actually national guidance to keep lids on. So one of my biggest frustrations is councils with these very old contracts with um, facilities that said, no, you can't do this, you can't do that. But I mean, over time, those facilities have developed, but the contracts haven't. And so we end up with some quite mi- mixed messaging between councils. Um and so there are some things that are nationally recognised, like putting lids back on, that you can just do, even if a council says you can't. It'll be it's definitely the right way to go.
0: Yeah. Okay, that's really that's really uh, helpful and and great advice. Again, uh, where do you think the the world of uh, waste is heading?
1: Oh my goodness, we've only got nine minutes. Um,
0: I could talk about this for hours. So I'll give a digested version. Um,
1: I mentioned what EcoSurety does. So eco-surety ensures that a bottle is recycled for a number of parties in a supply chain, for example. Um, the world is moving towards uh, that cost. So right now, when we put a plastic bottle in our recycling bin, the cost is picked up by the council through our council tax. And there is an element of cost that is picked up by that supply chain, but it's very small uh, in terms of what eco-surety does and what producer responsibility does, which is this piece of legislation, it picks up about 10% of the overall cost of waste management. And the UK is moving to a space under the Environment Act, uh, very shortly moving to this space, where the brand will pay for all of the recycling. So the council will say, it cost me this much to collect bottles, cans, da, 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 da. And then they will take that entire cost and put it back to the brand. So right now we have this two-tiered system. We pay for it with our council tax. Brands pay a little bit. In the future, it's going to be brands paying for all of it, which is massive. So, a lot of the discussion at the moment is how do we set up for that system? Because it's coming in very soon in the next couple of years, where all of the waste management that we do, as in all our stuff that we put out for our council, the costs will be covered by the brands. And then the idea is that you will pay more. Let's say you had two companies putting equal products on the market, as in the same plastic, same weight. If one of them was using black plastic and one of them was using clear, the one using black would be penalised and have to pay more because it's less likely to be recycled. So Mm. the idea is that it will shift people into more recyclable products. Um, That is one part of this. So there's four pieces of legislation. There's that one, which is the kind of improvement of the current system. There's deposit return schemes, which you see a lot about in the news, where for drinks, cartons and, and bottles, we will have to pay a deposit. And then when we return it, we get a deposit back. So that will stop bottles and drinks being part of our council tax, uh, council remit. You've then got the plastic packaging tax, which has already gone live, which is a tax for companies if they don't use recycled plastic in their product. And then finally, we've got this one that is in the news all the time, but you might not know it. You might not see it. It's called consistency of collections, which is the idea that councils should collect the same thing in the same way, um, making it super easy for us. So they need to collect food waste by uh, twenty twenty i think it is weekly oh, don't hold me to i think that's true <laughs> then 2027 20, they need to collect film and soft plastic so uh the plastic that you see currently being collected at supermarkets so we've got these four pieces of legislation that all work together um drs takes the drinks cartons uh, e- uh plastic packaging tax make sure recycled plastic is in the product consistency makes sure we all know what we can recycle and where and then epr funds it all and uh, epr being the The brand's paying for everything. All four of them work together. None of them work individually. And unfortunately, the problem the government have at the moment is they're delaying all sorts of things. So if you look up consistency of collections on Google now, you see loads of news stories about the fact that that's been delayed. And so we're going to end up with this position where brands are paying for our collections, but the collections aren't consistent or good. (laughs) So... Mm -hmm. Brands are paying for something that they don't want to pay for. They want to pay for consistency and and good collections. So, our frustration at the moment is those four are not linked. They're they're yeah. all being treated individually and they need to come together. But the, I guess the question everyone asks here is: Is my council tax going to get cheaper? No, I don't.
0: Have to I was, lo- was going to ask that.
1: Not a chance in hell. <laughs> <laughs>
0: you're That's just going to pay answer. more. For, if um... want
1: the money. They're just going to put it somewhere else. But um, so you just yeah, pay I...
0: more for packaged goods. Um.
1: Yeah, they've worked it out. I can't remember the exact amount, but it was, you know, 100, between 100 and 200 pound a household, I think, a year to cover the cost of this legislation. So it will get passed to us. And that's part of the reason they want to delay um, the launch of this, because now we're into cost of living and all these different things. It's like, how much do we put back on the consumer? Um, So it will end up being passed to us through what we buy. I guess the idea is that it will be more expensive in theory to buy a black plastic tray than a clear plastic tray. So you might as a consumer make a different decision of what you're buying based on its packaging type, whether that actually comes true or not. You know, I think that's what the sugar tax was meant to do, right? For, um, for soft drinks that had sugar and soft drinks that didn't. The reality is they just up the price of everything and keep it all the same. So It's unlikely i think that it would get passed in that way but that's the intention of the legislation that we will make better decisions
0: mm. okay awesome that's really, that's super interesting to hear where it's going and what's um what's around the corner uh yeah disapp- disappointed disappointment i'm sure that, that council tax won't be going down but um you know that i think it, it only makes sense that there's the sort of direct responsibility um this, this might be too big a question for the last four minutes but I, I I've, I've recently become a, a mentor for the UK space agency accelerator and I sort of see that we can save the planet and explore beyond this world but I often find there's a kind of binary view like what why do you think that is with with people
1: oh well, that is a big question
0: sorry binary view in terms of
1: saving the planet versus getting off the planet yeah <laughs> um I guess it costs a lot of money to get off the planet so you might you know if you're going to do one <laughs> they both cost a lot of money so I guess people are like oh we should do one or the other rather than double investment I mean I'm if you ask me I think we should be doing what we can here and 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 getting things right and I think there's a huge opportunity you know we've seen this kind of evolution of compostable packaging which is complex I mean that's a whole different part of the book um but we have seen these this evolution of alternative packaging types and i would say the dialogue is the strongest it's ever been you know because of things like blue planet and things that were happening there is a very strong uh opinion out there around whether we should use certain packaging types and i think we need to capture that work out what the best packaging is and get it out there in terms of the bigger question around should we be focusing on sustainability or leaving you know i think there's a huge opportunity to get the planet in you know to to fix some of the things we've done. And I'm only, a, I'm only looking at a small part of that in the packaging waste, electricals and batteries sector. And obviously there's lots going on in in other areas. Um, But I, I definitely think we should do what we can while we can.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it's an either or. I think you get like but, but progress and you talked about this as, you know, never sitting still it, it is a way of like developing new ideas. You always get like benefits from like one, you know, life is a you know a radar diagram a spider diagram when you push out like some learning in one place you get new learning in another place and then you get transference of like knowledge so yeah I, I think there's an and between it and like it's not just stay here or or leave I think that there's there's just we learn so much from trying to understand how to explore beyond uh, beyond this planet um but um anyway look uh you know just just uh, in the One minute left. So um, what advice would you give uh, uh, leaders listening today?
1: I think, um, well, for me, I think it's about trusting your people. That's my big thing. You know, it's like, how do we make sure that people feel they have autonomy and deliver a good job and they want to deliver a good job rather than we're forcing them to deliver a good job. Um, And for me, that's about trust. I think, you know, Pots, you were, extremely trusting of me and you know I joined the board at about 24 I became CEO at 28 and a shareholder at 33 you know these were massive leaps in my career and my evolution and it all stems from the opportunities I was given as a graduate to join this business and and help make it grow and be trusted to be like okay you can do what you need to do to make a success of your um, of the business and your, and your career and I think I'm a big advocate then for trying to pay that forward essentially by giving people that opportunity and making sure if they want those opportunities, they get them. Um, And, you know, I constantly viewed my management style as making myself redundant. I I had a new job, you know, every year essentially, because I was constantly trying to make myself redundant to get the next job. And I think if if I didn't feel trusted to keep progressing, then I'd be worried about doing that. So I wouldn't be trying to make my job that I was currently in as good as I possibly could so I could step away from it, if that makes sense. So I, yeah. I think that was the opportunity for me, and that's the advice I would give leaders.
0: Yeah, no, amazing. And I always remember the mantra, which is, you know, do you have, like, five years' experience or do you have, like, one year's experience five times? So, like, it's it just trying to always keep, like, fresh, understand what's happening, you know. it's it's Everything's moving so quickly, you can't stand still. And, um, yeah, like, hats off to you for... Uh, you know, stepping it, stepping up, stepping into that role, when taking it on the journey that that, that it Shuri has been and now now beyond. So, um, well well done. Um, hey, look, so there you have it. Um, you know, let's make sure we trust in our people, we nurture our culture, and recycle more. Than a tennis ball, I think, was the key takeaway from today. I love that. So um, um hope you feel you can go out there and do good in in your own way from this. Um, our next Wiser Wednesday will be on Heart Led Leadership with Jay Brown. So tune in. Um, if you have any questions for us, uh, I, I'm sure James will be happy um, for you to link out. link. To connect via LinkedIn or to to ask via LinkedIn, um, you know. Finally, thanks, James. Um, you know, for today, you've uh, been an awesome speaker. Um, thank you to everyone for listening as well. I hope you feel slightly wiser this Wednesday as a result of joining us. So, thank you. Goodbye.
1: Thank you.